The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please, and we'll look at uh, the book of Romans. And we're going to read, just for reference this evening, at uh, Romans chapter 3 from verses 21 to 31. And we'll come back at this at the end of our message. Beginning of verse 21, Paul is writing and he says, But now, from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We've been looking for a past couple of weeks and this month and the one previous in May about the attributes of God. Who is God and what is he like? How are we going to relate to a God unless we know a little bit about him? And for me personally, I I really appreciate the chance to do this because my own faith has deepened. My own regard for God has grown as I've looked at these different attributes. And I want to encourage you again tonight, take some time, get a Bible dictionary, get a theology book, Take your Bible and a Strong's Concordance. Just go through and look up all the different verses about each individual attribute, holiness or righteousness and so on. But I want to give you three things tonight. Number one, God is righteous. That's who he is, his character and his nature. Number two, God does righteously. All his actions and his words and everything are of a righteous character. And thirdly, God makes others righteous also. Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard us talking about the holiness of God. And we said last week that God's holiness is his infinite moral purity and his divine majesty. Uh, moral purity simply means that God knows all right and wrong. God always does that which is right. God never can do what is wrong. God can never even look upon what is wrong. He is so holy. God can only do that which is right. He never even can think about or conceive of himself doing that which is wrong. That's God's holiness. And connected to that... As an outflow of that holiness is his righteousness. 
And God possesses infinite moral purity, so he must be righteous. Because it would be completely inconsistent for God, who has infinite moral purity, to at the same time do something that was wrong or of an immoral or an amoral nature. He couldn't do it. It's totally inconsistent. God possesses infinite moral purity. He must be righteous. He cannot be, at the same time, infinitely morally pure, and unrighteous. It is a total inconsistency. Righteousness, you say, how do we know what righteousness is? It's judged as whatever conforms to God's moral character, and God's moral character determines what is righteous. You say, how do we know what God is righteous? You can't say, well, does God measure up to some standard? Because God himself is the standard. There's nothing you can apply God to and say, does God meet this mark? God is the mark. His own character is the standard by which we judge what is righteous. Unrighteousness is judged by whatever fails to conform to the moral character of God. There is nothing against which God himself can be measured and judged. God is the standard by which right is determined as right and wrong is determined as wrong. He is the standard by which unrighteousness is measured and determined to be unrighteous. Righteousness, if you like, is a strict adherence to the law. God's law. Now, we've got to be careful here because we don't want to say that God is subject or underneath his law because there is nothing that can be over God. But God's law is the righteous expression of his nature and his character. So when God gave the law, he wasn't just telling Moses what he had to do and could not do. He was expressing the very character of who he was in that law. So God's righteousness, in that sense, is a strict adherence to the law. God's righteousness and God's justice are virtually synonymous. Okay, So God's justice is the expression, the carrying out, the putting into practice of his righteousness. So his righteous character exercises justice in all realms, in all ways. Okay? We'll explain this a little bit more later. God's justice itself displays in giving every... Try it again in English. God's justice displays itself in giving every man exactly what he deserved, determined by God's righteousness. So you can never say, well, God was unfair because he didn't give me what I deserved. God gave you exactly what you deserve. And even the very end of the day, when God receives us into his kingdom and we stand face to face with Christ, God is not unjust to welcome us in. The phrase in 26, verse 26 of Romans 3 there, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus is a great dilemma in theology. How can God be perfectly, exactly just and still declare righteous Sinners before him. How can God do that? But when God does that, he does not put aside his justice and say, oh, well, you know, uh, someone was a nice guy. We'll just let him in. We won't worry about justice in this one case. Edna was a lovely lady. We'll just put aside my justice so that Edna can come into my kingdom. And, you know, Nelson's such a horrible guy that we're going to exert justice to the full extent on Nelson and forget about grace. God never does that. He is at the same time both just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How does that work itself out? We'll see at the end. Some of these things, some of these attributes of God, they're things that we just can only get a murky, hazy view of. Our finite human minds struggle to deal with these things. And sometimes the scripture doesn't give us great explanation. It simply uses words and phrases by which we then take those and try and get our heads around what they're saying. So talking about God's righteousness, there's three key words used in the original languages to describe his righteousness. And the one is tzadek in the Old Testament Hebrew, and it means to be just to be righteous, to make righteous, or to declare righteous. In Hebrew, again, the word yesar. It means upright, absolutely straight, having moral integrity to walk upright. That is yesar. And of course, in the Greek, the, those the Greek people, as plus as the Greek students and the scholars will all know the word dikaiosune. And I said it wrong for the Greek people. You all know that. Dikaiosune means his righteousness, his justice. It means conforming to a standard or a norm. It describes both the character of God and all of his actions. God's righteousness and his omnipotence have to go together. His omnipotence being his all-powerfulness. Imagine for a second, if God was absolutely righteous, perfectly morally pure, but he was not omnipotent. So being absolutely righteous, the sin of man would offend him, but he could do nothing about it. That's a terrible situation to be in, and it gives us absolutely no hope whatsoever. But praise God, the God we serve is both righteous and omnipotent, which means he can exercise his justice and nobody can escape from the justice of God. Everybody falls under the justice and the just hand of God and God's just working in our lives. God himself is the final standard of what is right. Who do you appeal to if you think something's been done wrong against you? You appeal to the ultimate standard. If you go to court and you get, a say, a speeding ticket and you want to appeal the speeding ticket, you go to the court and, you, and get the judge says, no, no, you're guilty and charges you the fine, you can appeal to the higher court and the higher court again. And you can keep appealing until you run out of appeals and you have to pay the ticket. Well, in the case of God, we can appeal to God only because there's nothing higher than God. He is the ultimate standard because he is the absolutely righteous one by which everything else is measured. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, the Bible says, describing God, they call him the rock. Absolute, steadfast surety. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. All of those phrases, perfect work, ways are just, faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright, they're underlining and underscoring the same thing over and over again. God is absolutely righteous. He's always in the right and he always does what is right. The righteousness of God is described in scripture as a very high. In Psalm 71, 19, the Bible says, for your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. That's not the clouds that we can see. That's the extent of all of the universe. God's righteousness cannot be over appealed or overcome or pushed aside. There is no limit to it. It is absolutely high. 
The Bible says that God's righteousness is an abundant righteousness. It isn't just a small thing going straight up. The Bible says, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. That means that there's no limit to it whatsoever. It's an abundant righteousness. His righteousness, the psalmist says, is beyond calculation. In Psalm 71, 15, my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. He means he can't count it. He can't even calculate how extensive the righteousness of God is. It's beyond measure. God's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. There are some laws on our books that come to an end. They don't no longer have any weight. They don't have any uh, governance over us. But God's righteousness is everlasting, which means there's no end to his righteous decrees. There's no end to his righteous activity, his righteous words, his righteous doing in our lives. The Bible says... In Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. God's righteousness is displayed in his word. Most of all, Psalm 119, just read through all those descriptions about God's law, God's statutes, God's testimonies and precepts. They all describe the righteousness of God. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. That means every single word of Scripture as God inspired it to be written was inspired in perfect righteousness. There was not, not even for a split second, a faulty motive or a falsehood in God as he inspired his word. His word is absolutely dependable because it's a righteous word. Second main thing is this. God does righteously. He is righteous and he does righteously. All his will, his actions and his words are righteous in their character. The Bible says in Judges 5 verse 11, There they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. The righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. All the deeds of God. All of God's dealings with them. Never once did God deal unfairly and unrighteously with his people. He disciplined them exactly according to what they deserved. So when they grumbled and 23,000 were taken and killed in judgment, God was absolutely righteous in the way he handled that. And you know what? That gives me great hope. Because that means that the way that God deals with me is exactly the same character. He always deals righteously with me. There are times when we think, you know, my situation is not fair. My situation could be this and God should do this. And why isn't God taking care of this? And we start to put our hands on our hip and shake our head and clock our tongues at God. And why isn't he just picking up the pace? Why isn't he taking care of this? God's actions are righteous. He's done them out of a perfect, flawless, sinless motive. And he knows exactly what he is doing. And the way that God is being patient with you, think about that too. God is being patient with you. It's a righteous patience. And the way that God is maybe disciplining you a little bit, that's a righteous disciplining. He does it exactly according to his will and his character. God always does right. He acts in accordance with what is right. This is the words of Abraham. Listen, these are really cool. Far be it from you to do such a thing. He's speaking to God. 
to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Does anybody remember what that situation was when Abraham speaking to God? That's right. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God's going to go down and judge them. And Abraham says, I will propose to speak to God. I'll stop him on his way. I'll say, wait a minute. Will you destroy all of the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you, O God. Will you deal with the righteous and the wicked the same? No. And of course, we know what God does. He goes down there in grace. He works to get Lot and his wife and his kids out of the city and they escape out and God's justice comes. And we see the beautiful picture there. There is judgment and justice come, but there is grace before and God rescues the righteous out of judgment. God always deals absolutely righteously. God always speaks what is right. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right means righteous character, rejoicing the heart. That means every single word of Scripture, as we read it, it's written from a righteous character. And every word, even those tough spots like Isaiah or Jeremiah or some of the lamentations, you go, why is God saying this in His Word? They're all written from a righteous character to communicate Himself to us. God always deals with people and humanity according to what is right. His judgments are unfailingly impartial and true. God cannot be bribed, bought, or blinded. I love that. There is never once that God looks at your situation and thinks, oh, well, from here it looks like it's all good and just goes ahead and does something. God always sees right to the core. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the very depths of your heart as you speak and as you pray. He knows what is hypocritical and what is true. I love the fact that you cannot hide from God. And you know, we can get up and preach a sermon and do great sounding words. We can pray with great language and great words. But God sees right into the core of our hearts. He knows what's truly here. God deals with his humanity according to what is right. He cannot be bribed, bought, or blinded. God's righteousness always brings about the vindication of the righteous and the punishment of the guilty. I love the phrase in Romans chapter 3. He talks about the forbearance of God. All those thousands of years where God just waited and waited and waited and he put off that day until finally when Christ was on a cross and God exercised executed and exercised the full righteous judgment of God against sinful man and Christ alone bore it all. His forbearance, he waited. We're talking about uh, Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve in the garden. And I always just think, well, it's not, it doesn't seem right because God said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. It's so emphatic. It's so underlined. And yet Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. Adam lived 900 years after that. And I thought, well, this doesn't seem right because you promised them that they would get that judgment until you realize, of course, that God exercised that judgment on an innocent victim that he might spare the man and his wife. And we see again grace and judgment that go together there. It's beautiful. The gospel of Christ displays God's righteousness. In Psalm 85, verse 10, I have not noticed this verse before. Listen to this. It's beautiful. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. 
Isn't that cool? It's just got, it's just such a beautiful spot, it's a beautiful scene. Righteousness of God and peace have kissed. God has worked peace for us according to His own righteousness. He has worked and accomplished peace between God and us through what Christ has done. They've kissed each other. It's a, it's a beautiful expression of love that brought them together. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, we just read it. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness So the gospel of Christ with the righteousness of God being exercised towards us in making us righteous. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God Almighty be righteous and simultaneously forgive sin? That's a great dilemma of the whole of the Bible. Does God just pass it over, let it go, forget about it? No. God is absolutely righteous in everything He does. We said already, number one, God is righteous. Number two, God does righteously. And number three, God makes others righteous as well. He reveals His righteousness ultimately in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth that we might understand the righteousness of God the righteousness of God and the grace of God together. The message of Christ is consistent with the Old Testament in his connection. He's he's tying together the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. There can be no entrance into God's kingdom without our first being found or being judged to be righteous. The Bible says this, Jesus said, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he ties the two together. You can't seek for his kingdom without his righteousness. And you can't seek for his righteousness without his kingdom. They must be sought together. In Matthew 13, verse 43, Jesus said this. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, those in the kingdom will only be those who have been judged as righteous. But here's the problem. And you all know what it is. None of us has that righteousness of God. None of us can possibly have it or work for it or get there or somehow work ourselves up to it because all that time of working our way up is all part of it and you can't be partly righteous and partly unrighteous. For God to welcome us in, we have to be completely and totally righteous. So how can it be? Jesus Himself is God's final, ultimate revelation of what God requires individuals to be to, in order to enter into His kingdom. He was sinless, righteous, holy, pure, undefiled. None could convict Jesus of sin. None found any just cause to condemn Him. But God has concluded that all the rest of humanity, Adam till the very end, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says in Romans 3, a little earlier than where we read, says then, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it's written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's the worst piece of news that humanity ever got. There's none righteous, not even one. Well, what about so-and-so? He's No, not him. Well, you know, what about the other guy? You know, he's always doing good works and good deeds for people. No, not even him. What about David? He was a man after God's heart. No, not even him. No one. And he makes it so emphatic. No, not even one. But Jesus taught that by faith in God and repentance of sin and following him as the Messiah, we could enter the kingdom of God. And here's where the beautiful doctrine of the justification by faith comes in. Justification, scripturally, biblically, simply means to be declared right. God is absolutely righteous. We've kind of established as best we could. God cannot accept anyone that is unrighteous. We've kind of made that point. Our unrighteousness can't be dealt with. It can't be scrubbed up and polished up. It has to be completely removed. And it has to be replaced with God's righteousness for us to be accepted. God must make us righteous. That's the heart of the gospel. He has to work in our lives to make us righteous. We cannot even reach to the righteousness of God. We've all sinned. One single sin defiles our moral purity. As soon as Adam took that fruit in disobedience to God, he was cut off as surely if he's been sinning for a million years every single second of the day. That one act of disobedience and defiance against God was a sin to cut him off. We cannot make ourselves righteous. It's impossible. We must receive God's righteousness from God as a gift. Back to our text again. Romans 3, 21 and 25. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been displayed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified, being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Hands up if you don't know what propitiation means. Good on you. A couple of you admitted it. Propitiation is, remember it by three S's. It's a satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice. Somebody died in my place and it was satisfactory. So it means that all of God's wrath was met, absorbed, and answered by Christ. So God was completely satisfied. The old King James has a great verse in Isaiah 53, verse 11. God shall see of the travail of his soul, the labor, the agony of his soul, and God shall be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. He suffered in our place. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the righteousness from God revealed, a righteousness that is received by faith. So it's righteousness as the character of God, 
Righteousness is God's speaking, acting, doing everything he does as a righteous character. And righteousness is also God's making others righteous. Think about that. God is right. God does right. And God makes us right. That's an amazing God that we serve. Amen. And when you realize, just stop for a second and realize one single sin. How long did you live before you committed that first sin? Well, none of us actually knows because we were too young to remember. But that sin cut you off. You were born in sin. You were born with a sin nature. There was no possible chance. And yet God in amazing grace works righteousness, works righteously to make us righteous so he can give us that righteousness of Christ and welcome us in and accept us. And that relationship that we have with God is not an unjust relationship. It's a perfectly legal, just relationship. He has dealt with the sin. He's given us righteousness. He accepts us on the basis of Christ's righteousness. What an amazing God we have. So how does it all work? We hear the message of the gospel, that God is right and holy and just and sinless. We hear that God created us to glorify him by perfect obedience to his will. But we have all sinned and failed to glorify God by perfect obedience. We failed to keep even the most basic of God's law, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart. I don't care how good you are. None of us has met that one basic thing. You see, I never stole anything. Great. I never committed adultery. Good. I never lied. I don't believe you. You probably just did. I never did this. I never did that. I never did the other thing. Really? Fantastic. Have you loved God with all your heart? Not part of it. All of it. With all your might. With all your strength. For all of your days, bar none. And we're all stunk, aren't we? We're all kicked out. But God in grace deals with it. We have all failed to keep even the most basic of God's law. God's justice and righteousness demands that the penalty be administered to the guilty party. But God in grace, if this doesn't drive home to you the grace of God, I'm not sure what will. God in infinite, matchless grace. It's grace so amazing. It's so huge. You can't even begin to understand it. God in grace applied the penalty for our sin to Christ. God's demand for justice has been met and answered for us by Jesus suffering on a cross. He extends his grace and his kindness and his mercy to us and says, in faith. Seek my forgiveness and you'll have it in faith. Trust me to keep my promises and I will make you righteous in faith. Repent of your sin and grace comes to us like through a great big tube. And that tube is called faith. We're saved by grace through faith. So as we trust God, grace pours into our hearts And God takes and he makes us righteous. He takes Christ's righteousness and he pours it out on you and covers you with it, removing your unrighteousness at the same time. And when he looks at you, he does not see who you used to be. He sees who you are in Christ. One of the most incredible, I mean, they're all incredible attributes of God. He's holy, but he's righteous. 
And I love the fact that he can be just. You say, when you are received into glory, God will receive you in justice. How? Because righteousness is now yours. Christ's righteousness. So he'll look at you and he'll see Christ's righteousness wrapped over your soul. Wrapped around you like a great big white robe. The Bible talks about a robe of righteousness. And he'll see that righteousness and say, you've met the mark. He'll see that righteousness and say, there's no rebellion here. He'll see that righteousness and say, you walked within the lines all of your life. You didn't, but Christ did it for you. And you realize in a moment, my salvation's got nothing to do with me. I simply trusted Him. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen? Amen. What a great God. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we'll be done for the evening. Unless, of course, you stand for pizza. I hope you are. Loving Father, we come before you tonight. And, oh God, we would simply say we love you. We love you, oh God, because you first loved us, as Nikolai reminded us of in his testimony. You loved us with a love that is beyond our understanding. Loving Father, you who are absolutely righteous, you who are infinitely holy, you who are moral purity to the infinite level, you whose righteousness reaches to the highest of the heavens is an everlasting, never failing, never fading righteousness. We who were sinners, we did not seek you, you sought for us. We did not strive to find you. We did not try and please you. We did not do anything to seek you out. Oh God, you reached out to us and sought us and brought us And Father, we give you thanks that you took the infinite value and worth of Christ and placed it upon us. And you saw us and you declared across our lives the chaos, just, righteous. Loving Father, we pray. Father, I plead with you that we as a church would get a hold of these great truths. Father, that it would not just become some piece of information we can tuck away in the back of our Bible. We learn something about your righteousness. But, Father, I plead with you that as we learn these things and understand them, Father, may it drive us to worship. May it drive us and compel us and draw us. Father, may we see these things and run towards you in reverent fear. But, Father, run towards you that we might give you worship. Father, we have been blessed beyond all imagining. And Father, we give you thanks that every action towards us is righteous and is just. And Father, you know exactly what you're doing in each of our lives. Father, we pray this morning or this evening, Lord, for some in our church who are struggling and wrestling with what you are doing. They're seeing difficulty and hardship and doubting and wondering what God is about. Father God, I plead with you that you would help them to understand that every single action towards them is just and fair and right. And you have a plan and a purpose in it. 
Father, the very fact that you enable us to come is grace. The very fact that we can see your word and read about it and know who you are through your word is matchless grace. Father, thinking again of what Noel shared this morning, the Passover scene. When you looked down at Moses and you said, I will see the blood and I will pass over. What grace, O God. And Father, even though we know that the blood of a lamb cannot atone for sin, but you in forbearance and grace beyond grace saw that blood and looked all the way down through the annals of time to when Jesus would hang on a cross and his blood would flow freely. And he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his blood would be the offering that would atone for sin and cleanse us. Father, thank you for grace so great and so rich and so free. Thank you, O God, that you are a righteous God. And Father, we pray as we go home this evening and go through our week. Father, we pray that our thoughts our minds would come back to these rich truths and we would soak them up and meditate on them and think of them as we go through our week and come back again on Sunday morning with a heart to worship and love our God who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for all these things and we plead with you, O God, for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.